back. Um, just a little disclaimer, I have a little bit of a cold, I don't have COVID, got tested, so um, if I cough or uh, need to take a little bit of a break, um, that's why. So um, again, my name is Henry Michael, I uh, am the pastor over the student ministries and I'm thankful you guys are here. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, so if you have your Bibles with you, you might as well go into that. Um, we're going to be in the NIV version, so if you get, get to that, we'll get to that in a little bit, so. The legends of Bigfoot, different alien encounters, the Loch Ness Monster have captured the imagination of hundreds of people throughout the centuries. Um, and for 25 years, uh, a man named Steve Feltham has resiliently been tracking the Loch Ness Monster. He's been doing this for 25 years, that's him. He has quit his job. He sold his house, he bought a van that he can live in and make it habitable so he can fully commit to looking for the Loch Ness Monster. And there was a, uh, a documentary about him. And because he has the Guinness Book World Records for the longest uh, continuous search for the Loch Ness Monster, which is a fun world record to have, and he addresses his seemingly absurd commitment to finding the Loch Ness Monster. He says... The reason I sit here and try to solve this mystery is because that is what makes my heart sing, he says in the film. My life gives me freedom and adventure, unpredictability. It's a dream come true. So I'm not telling the story about this guy because I want to make fun of him at all. I 100% believe that he has found in his life, um, that he believes that he's found in his life, the thing that all of us are looking for, a purpose, something to live and give everything for. He's bought all in. He's transformed his life for this. And he's resilient to find the Loch Ness Monster, despite everyone proving the fact that the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist. Now, this series is about cultivating a resilient faith. Romans 5 through 8, we've been talking about what does it mean to cultivate a resilient faith, a resilient faith um, that maybe could mirror this guy's commitment to finding the Loch Ness Monster. What if we could have a faith that was so resilient that it made our hearts sing? And that's what this series is about, resilient faith, a faith that can carry you through suffering and disappointments that life is inevitably going to bring. But as we look across the Christian landscape, we see uh, so many people that are coming up against these faith crises. They're disappointed with God, they're disappointed in the church, they're disappointed in the culture of Christianity, and they want to throw it all away. And, and social media has made this uh, very clear. You can see prominent Christian leaders and regular everyday Christians that are throwing away their faith because of disappointments or unfulfilled promises. What gets a lot less press are the Christians who persevere through those same sufferings and those same disappointments that are normal to the Christian life. And so what's the difference between these two groups? The difference is a resilient faith. They not only found God, but are in a deep relationship with him. This is not only going to lead to a resilient faith, but it's going to lead to a heart that sings. And this is no accident. As we look through the first half of Romans 8, Today, we're going to see three essential truths that redefine our identity towards a resilient faith. But before we hear from God's word, we're going to pray together 
that uh, the Spirit illuminates our hearts during our reading and our time in the Scriptures. Uh, The prayer is based off of Ephesians chapter 4. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word or truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us as we look to you. Renew our thoughts and our attitudes. Form us to be a reflection of your love and your grace. Remind us to rely on the power of your Holy Spirit and rest in the hope of your promises. Lord, I pray um, as we jump in your word um, that that we have ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, and I pray for everyone in here um, as we're uh, jumping into different COVID stuff that's happening in our culture and more uncertainty, Lord, I pray that we see you as a firm footing and a place where we can have that resilient faith and a bright um, and hopeful future. I pray as we listen to your word that you speak to us and that we grow closer to you. In your name I pray. Amen. And so, right off the bat, we're going to jump in Romans 8, chapter 1, and we're going to see the first truth that redefines our identity towards a resilient faith. And that first truth is in the very first verse is that we are not condemned. It says, In verses 1 through 4, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So right off the bat, we see that we're not condemned. That's a wonderful truth. It's actually a very straightforward verse. Right away it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. We can stop right there. That would be amazing. But if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, you're going to start, you, you will start realizing that sin is a little trickier than that. Sin is a powerful force that leaves us feeling worthless, living in fear, shame, and guilt. Just look back at Romans 7, starting in verse 14. You see the confusing nature of sin. When we know the truth and we know what's wrong and yet we do it anyways and, we're, and we feel terrible that we did this sin and it's a really confusing but it is a powerful force that, is, that takes control over our lives. We are conditioned to feel condemnation because of sin. So what Paul is telling us in verses 1 through 4 is that there, are, there is no condemnation for those who follow Christ Jesus. Yet all of us, or many of us, still live under a cloud of condemnation. And I think there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that we emphasize the external over the internal. We emphasize the outside over the inside. Another way of saying that is we, we are very religious in how we enact uh, Christian truths, or when we read our Bibles, following the rules, or at least looking like we're following the rules, becomes the goal of the Christian life. And as one pastor describes it, it looks like you're trying to hold a beach ball underwater, 
If you've ever held a beach ball underwater, it's not a very successful thing for a very long amount of time because it's slippery, it's wet, it's full of air, it wants to come out. And so hiding our sins is like hiding a beach ball underwater. And you're, you're maybe doing well for a little bit, but every once in a while it'll pop up and, and maybe a couple feet in the air and that's when your sin shows up and it's embarrassing and you're trying to hurry up and, and shove it back underwater. It's impossible to manage sin. Sin pops up at the most inopportune times in our lives when we try to push it down and try to hide it and we focus on the external and looking good for others. And when it pops up, it brings guilt and it brings shame and condemnation. Because if the goal is external, your only answer is, well, I guess I'll try a little harder next time. People who only focus on the external are are some of the loneliest people out there. Because they're the only people who know what's actually going on in their lives. Not only that, it leads to more condemnation because when you focus on the external, you're looking at other people and you're comparing yourself to them because that's all that matters to you. And you start feeling worse and worse and worse because, again, you're the only one who knows what's going on. Everyone else seems to have it together except you. The other way that we live in condemnation is that we normalize our sin. This is when we look at the mounting sin in our lives, and we have nowhere to go with it. This, can be, uh, this could also be the person who focuses on the external as well, but this is the person that is, is sick and tired of feeling guilt and shame, and instead of bringing it to Jesus Christ, who can take away that guilt and shame and say, there is no condemnation they just normalize it. And they think, if, if I just you know, normalize it, then I'll feel, I'll feel good because, hey, we're, I'm not perfect. We say things like, the kids are exhausting. You don't know what they're like. Yeah, they'll forget that I lost control over them, that I yelled at them, that I screamed. They'll forget about that, which hits home to me today. Maybe uh, you're, oh, that, that's not gossip and slander. I'm just really worried about them. I just wanted to make sure that, that we prayed about them. And I'm telling way too much, but yeah, you know, let's pray for them. I'm really worried about them. I don't have time to study. I can't fail this class. I, don't, I won't get the college that I want, the job that I want, whatever it is. I had to cheat. I had to copy off of that person's homework. I had to look over and see what they said on that answer. I needed to do that to get past this class. The divorce rate is high. That's why I'm living with my girlfriend or sleeping around. I want to make sure that I find the right person. We say things like, well, if they do it, it's fine, right? Can't be that bad. Both fixating on the external and normalizing our sin, it always points the, the, the finger at you. It's all about you. You're thinking about yourself constantly. You and your comfort and whatever will get you by. Whatever helps you sleep at night. If you're not as bad as so-and-so, and if people like you, it's all fine. And that's only a short-term solution until everything falls apart. But it's also, and even worse, robbing the work that Jesus has done in our lives. The person with a resilient faith rejects both of these options, normalizing and focusing on the external. They realize, yeah, I may not be perfect, but Jesus is. 
Their faith isn't in their ability to fight their sin with their being able to hide it or normalize it or with their own strength, but Jesus' work that has already condemned that sin. They know they're not condemned. Their sin has been condemned on the cross. Different people who focus on themselves say, I can do better. I can do this. The people with a resilient faith say, Jesus did this, and his work is all that I need. So how do we move from focusing on ourselves to, the work of G- to focusing on the work of Jesus? We have to recognize that freedom from condemnation is a launching point towards a lifelong reality. Which is why we don't stop at that truth. We don't just say, hey, there's no condemnation. Good, let's go. We don't stop there. The second truth that, that changes and informs our identity is that we have been empowered We've been empowered to be the person that we were created to be. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. Paul's laying out two different pathways for us to go down. We can live by the flesh and whatever the flesh desires, or by the Spirit and what the Spirit desires in an empowered path. When I was reading this, I was trying, okay, what's, what's the best way to think about this? And I thought, you know what, dieting is the best way to think about this. I am by no means saying that I'm old. If you ask the youth, they'll say that I'm old, but I'm not that old. But I, as I am growing older, I'm starting to realize that my body is reacting differently to different foods than it used to when I was like 20. I used to eat two and a half to three Chipotle burritos in high school every time I went to Chipotle. Yeah, that's right. Um, now I, that would put me in a coma. So, but... When I moved here, I decided I went into a low-carb diet because basically I needed to break the chains of pizza and gummy bears. I love both of those things. And I used to eat such an alarming amount of pizza and gummy bears that I started blaming my dryer for shrinking my clothes instead of looking at uh, the amount of <laughs> gummy bears I was eating. So recently at middle school camp in early June... Um, Kyler, our middle school director, Sneaky Kyler is what we're going to call him from now on, 
um, messaged all the, the middle schoolers that were coming to camp. And he, and he said, hey, let's, because he knows I love gummy bears, I'll still eat gummy bears if I can get them because um, they're really good. I just try not to buy them because that's when the trouble hits. And he goes, for the, for the birthday, he goes, hey, campers, let's bring Henry a lifetime supply of gummy bears. And so I, it was my birthday, and he said, Henry, come on up. we got a gift for you. And, and all the kids just started dropping giant bags of gummy bears on me. And I think we've got a picture of that right here. There, we, there it is. Yeah, there's me trying to carry them all, and uh, there's my happy face of the amount of gummy bears that I got. So um, this is going to go on Kyler's review as a strike against him. Um, but I have been eating gummy bears again, unfortunately. Anyone who has dieted has, knows there's that one decision, that make or break decision where maybe it's in the first day, within the first week or two, where you're like, oh my gosh, I really could go for a bowl of ice cream right now. Or I could go for a pizza. I could, oh man, I could go for uh, whatever it is that you're trying to do. Now intellectually, if you think about it, that's really dumb, right? You're on a diet to get away from those things, yet you're on this diet and you are craving this food that you're trying to get away from. The things that made you feel terrible, you are craving. Intellectually, it's stupid. But if you've been there, you understand what I'm talking about. Our habits shape our cravings. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. If you, if you read in Exodus, you see the Israelites, they've been ensl- in, uh, enslaved for hundreds of years, and God very obviously and very miraculously saves them out of slavery, and he brings them to a new land that's going to be their own, and they see all of this stuff happening around them, the, the, the sea splitting in two, all the, the plagues, the pillar of fire, like all this crazy stuff happening, and when they get past that, they're like, oh my gosh, we're hungry, we don't have any food. We should go back to Egypt because at least we knew we had food. That's silly. That is stupid. It is looking back on slavery and saying, man, that looks awesome. And that's what we do in those diets. At least we had meals. Our habits shape our cravings. Now, God has done an amazing thing for us as Christians. He has saved us from condemnation. And that's a big deal. And if it ended in freedom from condemnation, we wouldn't have to go any further. But we have been conditioned as slaves. We are practiced slaves. And as as non-condemned people, oftentimes we tend to look back on the desires of the things that bring death. Despite the fact that we are free from condemnation. We need hope through the empowerment of the Spirit. Or as Paul says, we need to change our minds. We need to break the cycle of our cravings. So this too is a theme throughout Scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. If you are a Christian, you have the mind of Christ. You've been empowered to have the mind of Christ, not as a slave, but as mind of Christ. Meaning, as practiced slaves, having the mind of Christ needs to happen through formation, changing your mind, the slow, steady, sometimes boring process of changing your minds from the things that that used to bring death. Something more than just an intellectual exercise. 
Now, there's things that we look back on. Uh, there's specific things, but I think they all are rooted in these five selves. And I got this from Pastor J.D. Greer, five things that we are all going to go back to as practice slaves. One of them is self-will. I, not God, am in charge. Whether it's a good or bad thing that I'm doing, I'm the center of my life. Self-glory. I want the credit, not God. If I did that, it's all about me. Self-gratification. My pleasures, my comforts over the will of God. Self-righteousness. Working to prove yourself instead of resting in God's promises. Self-sufficiency. I can do this apart from God. I am all that I need. Now, if I were to ask any of you individually, like, hey, do you want to be a self-centered, self-absorbed person? We would all say no, right? I hope so, at least. Intellectually, we can all say, I don't want to be that. As we walk out the door, as we go into our our homes, uh, maybe even on your way to the kids' ministry to pick up your kids, old habits start kicking in because you are still a spouse, a parent, a friend, a child, an employee. And it's far too easy to revert back to being a slave rather than having our minds set on what the Spirit desires. So how do we change to be more like Christ? How do we change our minds? How do we go through that process? Is it through more effort Or is it as verse 11 says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. I want, make sure you hear this. Paul is not saying, stop it. He's not saying, figure it out. You know it's dumb. Be smarter. Do better. He's not saying any of those things. He's instead saying, yes, your body is still subject to death. But because of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that is living in you, it can change you from being a self-absorbed person and raising you from the dead. So how does this play out in every, everyday life? We're going to see the progressions of truth here, okay? So, of, of the identity change. One, you are not condemned. Two, um, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, it doesn't stop at condemnation. You're empowered to change your mind. We can't do that on your own. And where does this lead? It's, it leads to the fact that you have been named. Each and every way. If you are a Christian, you have been named. Looking in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory." If you hear that, in Christ, you've been taken out of obscurity. You have been taken out of living in fear and shame and condemnation where you had no standing before God and there was nothing you can do about that. 
to being an adopted child of God, a co-heir with Christ, to have a glorious future. This past year uh, in the Super Bowl, if you, if you watched that, some of you guys just watched the commercials, there was one really powerful commercial um, about Jessica Long. She's a uh, 13-time uh, Paralympic champion, and, and uh, it was a Toyota commercial. <clears throat> And in this Toyota commercial, they got to meet her, um, and she was adopted from Siberia. She had a rare condition in her legs that right before she was adopted, she had to have her legs amputated uh, a little below the knee. And in the commercial, there's this line that is amazing, where the mom is on the phone with the adoption agency, and she's, and she's just been told that she's not going to have legs, and it, it, the, the scene is like she's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And she says, it won't be easy, but it'll be amazing. It's a great line. The tagline is a perfect synopsis of her life because her life wasn't easy to become one of the greatest athletes in Paralympic history. Through, uh, she has faced anger that she was adopted, that she was left, uh, or that she was abandoned by her original family. She was angry that she was born with the condition with her, knee, or with her legs having to be cut off. She struggled with eating disorders, and to top it all off, she was born on a leap year. And so all these things are stacking up. But through her trials and tribulations, she says this looking back. She says, it took me years to realize that if I act ashamed and I tried to hide, then people kind of react the same way. She added, but if I wear my shorts or a cute summer dress and I show off my legs and I'm willing to talk about it, people are engaged and they want to know about my story. Now, so many Five Oakers are super involved in every aspect of the adoption and foster care ministry here at Five Oaks. And it's really cool to see. We have uh, families that are inviting kids into their homes and adopting them or fostering them and going through that journey. There are small groups that are adopting different families who are adopting and serving them financially with food by uh, uh, um, babysitting their kids because these parents need a break. It's a tough job that they have. Or There's people that are running all over the city for complete strangers dropping off food. And we do this because adoption is a big deal in Scripture, Adoption is a big deal because it is a picture of the gospel. The act of adoption is bringing somebody without a family or family that can provide and giving them your last name and giving them the title son or daughter. You're inviting them into the rhythms of your family and giving them a brand new story. And as beautiful as all that is, as many people who are, are in the trenches of adoption and foster care ministry realize that it's not an easy way to live. It is a long, expensive legal process. This isn't like a contest to win, like where kids win families. Like it is a long, uh, emotionally costly process. A title of son or daughter or a last name does not erase trauma and things that these kids have, have or are going to deal with in their lives. And adoption into God's family is very similar. God has declared us son and daughter of the king. 
Again, we're not winning this, like, we don't win a good and perfect father. This is a transaction. This is a legal process that was purchased for us on the cross. As adopted children of God, we are changed from practiced slaves to co-heirs with Christ. And the mind of Christ to have a glorious future. Where we were once, this is, this is the process of having our mind changed by Christ. Where we were once external, shoving down our sin, trying to hide our sin because of fear, guilt, and shame. We are now co-heirs. We are now children of God. And we have a good and perfect father who, whose wrath has already been paid on the cross. So that you can feel no condemnation and believe it. Because your sin has been paid for. There is no condemnation for the child of God. Where you once normalized your sin to avoid feeling um, lonely or condemned, you have security and intimacy and familiarity in God. It says we can call him Abba, Father. It's like saying, Daddy. It's like running to him with, with this like father that wants to embrace you and love you because you are his son or his daughter. And say, I need you. Help change me. Help change my mind to be more like Christ. And lastly, we are associated with Christ not to make life easier. Adoption is never easy, but to share in Christ's sufferings as co-heirs. As children of God, it won't be easy, but it will be amazing. This last piece of sharing in Christ's suffering is a very important part to be having a resilient faith and experiencing adoption in a way that you never have before. And it's the key to the res a resilient faith. It is why people throughout the world have church underground. For the things that we are talking about openly, singing about openly here, would risk their lives and their families. And they will not give up meeting together because they are a family. And they need each other. That's why people will sell everything they have. They will leave well-paying jobs to move into undesirable areas to reach people that are difficult because they're following the Spirit. They're sharing in Christ's sufferings. They're not looking at themselves, but they're looking towards Christ. They are not living by what the flesh desires, but what the Spirit desires. Those are the, those are, that's a big example, but what about Everyday examples. What about the stay-at-home mom who is at home with crazy kids going unnoticed and uncelebrated, lovingly, patiently preaching the gospel to their kids with the uncertainty of knowing how they'll turn out or if they'll ever grasp it? That is suffering for Christ, not looking at yourself, but following the Spirit. What about the co people in the workplace? When you share the gospel with a coworker, you are also entering uncertainty, whether they will reject you. Um, maybe you might lose some credibility at work. Maybe you might even lose your job or, a, or not get promoted in a certain way, but that is suffering for Christ because you're not looking at yourself. You're looking at others and following the Spirit. It's for the students who took a week out of their summer 
to serve people experiencing homelessness, walking into their lives, and loving people, and continuing to do it throughout the rest of the year. That is entering into Christ's sufferings. That is changing your mind to be more like Christ. None of it's easy, but it's amazing when you follow the Spirit. And so I want to challenge you guys. Maybe you haven't entered into that, that process of changing your mind and becoming more like Christ. That's why they have the Impact Passport. We're getting a new one soon in this fall. So if you're interested in that, right, Impact Passport, that is big and small ways of serving people in need and loving people, not looking to yourself. Um, you can get involved with the foster and adoption ministry. You, there are groups that are uh, taking families under their wings. Maybe that's something that you can do as a small group. Loving a family, uh, watching their kids, paying for things for them, bringing them food. There's a million ways to serve our families that are fostering and adopting in our community and in our city. Joining a small group is a way to share each other's sufferings. It's a place to share, not to stuff down your sin. It's not a place to go in and say, hey, look at me, I've got my life all together. It's a place to walk in and, and love each other. Maybe you're not going through anything hard right now, but you can be that presence in your small group to love and walk alongside somebody. There's a variety of ways that you can serve in the church where you're not looking at yourself, but you're looking towards Christ. This process of growing to be more like Christ is the process of growing to be more resilient. And we do this because we have a glorious future ahead. Now, communion is something we do every single week for a very specific purpose because we are looking towards a glorious future. This is a family meal. People who have been saved by Christ, people who are remembering that we are no longer condemned in Christ. It's a reminder that we're family, that we're no longer slaves, that we're co-heirs with Christ and we share this meal together remembering what Christ has said but also looking forward to having Christ come down where we can share in this meal together once again. So with that in mind, we take the bread remembering Christ's body which was broken for us. Take and eat. Then we take the juice remembering Christ's blood that was shed for us. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for uh, bringing a new reality to our lives where uh, we have the opportunity to not only know that we aren't condemned, know that you've empowered us, know that we are children and adopted children of God, but Lord, I pray that we can experience that as a reality in our lives. Lord, as we go throughout our weeks, as we um, deal with the pressures of life, I pray that you give us uh, the empowerment to not look to ourselves, not to look to our needs and, and, and to be self-centered, Lord, but to, to look towards you. I pray as we uh, enter our weeks as well as there's going to be pressures to um, not have a resilient faith. Lord, I pray that, that we push past that because we have a glorious future ahead. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.